Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It today, the first Wednesday of the month. It's me, Dan Morganti. Uh, Maze Wallen joins us. Hello, Maze. Hi, Dan. Uh, and Warren is with us as well for this Games Tacular episode. How you doing, Warren? I am good. I am game for the show. Yes, right. We're we're full of game news, game reviews, and game interviews tonight. Uh, tonight, I will be reviewing Wildfire, a Sydney game or a game from Sydney uh, with some great mechanics and uh, awesome graphics and story. Uh, we'll. Um, and we'll be interviewing uh, an exciting game name in games, uh, Mitch McCausland from Australian publisher Blowfish Studios. Uh, and earlier in the show, we'll also be talking to Dr. Ollie Brown of the Interactive Media Lab at the School of Art and Design of United, uh, UNSW about AI and making art and his new book, Beyond the Creative Species, Making Machines That Make Art and Music. Uh, before the chats, uh, we will be... Jumping right into the games review, though, uh, Wildfire. Yes, there is no news bigger than uh, Wildfire. So yeah, we just thought um, let's let's talk it through. Um, why is it so amazing, Dan? To talk it through. Um, well, I've been playing this game. I picked it up in Humble Bundle. Uh, for those of you who have ever heard me speak about Humble Bundle, I have nothing but praise to say about it. Um, so the game was created uh, by a video game collective called Sneaky Bastards from Sydney. At the head of the studio is Daniel Hines, who loves stealth games, so much so that Sneaky Bastards used to be a website and magazine about the stealth game genre and then moved on to creating their own fantastic stealth game. Um, the game had a successful run on Kickstarter and then was picked up and published by Humble Bundle, um, which I just mentioned, great uh, a uh, way for gamers to pick up some uh, cheap games if they're on a bit of a budget. Um, the story is about a young girl from a simple seaside village who is imbued with the powers of a mysterious meteorite that lets her control the elements and a duchess and her royal guard are bent on destroying the witch and stamping out magic in the land. Uh, so this is a 2D stealth puzzle platformer where you play a young woman who begins to gain powers controlling the elements like if are you guys fans of the game avatar or the sorry the show avatar the last airbender oh, yeah the show yeah um it's a little bit like that it's a bit of a power fantasy um and you get to control uh the elements fire earth and water it's kind of got that um super mario meets um sort of double dragon kind of aesthetic but yeah obviously with that kind of fantasy story that you, that you mentioned yeah yeah it's got uh the graphics are fantastic in this game as well um so the story starts your village is burned down and you're on the run from people and you're on the run from people who burned it down um and while all while trying to save the people captured from your village at the same time as you progress through the game, you gain points that you can spend unlocking and upgrading abilities that offer new means of traversal and distraction. Uh, the game is level-based and you have to essentially make it to the end of every level alive, blocking your path at various enemies and obstacles that you need to overcome. Um, for an indie game, the gameplay and controls are really tight. Uh, I know uh, we play a lot of indie games on this show and... 
uh, they just often just don't have the polish that a lot of uh, AAA developers have because they it's AAA developer. They have hundreds upon hundreds of people working for them. But this game uh, has exceptionally tight controls and animations. And um, yeah, controlling the elements is great fun. Um, and there is a lot of stealth gameplay. Do you know sort of how they got to that level? Like you talk about kind of the, the ability to... I guess time and money sort of affects how deep and how tight you can get a game. Yeah. How did, how did this one get to such a good point? Do you think? Um, it was made with Game Maker. Am I correct in saying that, Maze? You think you know more about this than I do. It's made with Game Maker? Yeah, yeah. So the engine um, that they used is Game Maker, which is designed for 2D. So it does help um, speed up some of, some of that pipeline. But the game was in development for quite a while compared to um, a lot of other indie games. And... Um, Dan Hines is very, very um, online um, and you can see how the polish of some of those little animations um, have just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and just like more beautiful with those with that beautiful pixel art palette. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I suppose it's good time to any to talk about the graphics. So, two two D pixel art games are a dime a dozen. A lot of indie games use it because pixel art saves time, and but there's also a real art form to it as well. Um, so, but I have to commend Sneaky Bastards for making their graphics stand out as much as they do among other indie games because uh, the character animations are fluid, the colors are vibrant and excellent, excellently contrasted. And the fire and smoke animations in the game are some of the best I've ever seen. Uh, almost every game struggles to get fire to look right, whether it's 2D or 3D, but Wildfire nails it, um, which is fantastic for a game called Wildfire and that deals with elements and, and the like. So if there's a video game award for best fire, Wildfire would take it home uh, and take second and third place as well. It, it, I've never seen fire, fire graphics like this. It's fantastic. Yeah, I remember my first time playing it, um, I... I played it after I saw a GIF and I was like, because my friend did the audio, I was like, mate, I got it. Come on, let me in. Let me try and play this. Um, and she was like, yeah, I've been setting chickens on fire and they've been spreading grass fires and blah, blah, blah. Um, and as she was playing the game, this is Megan O'Neill, the composer, um, she was finding all new ways to deal with the fire as well um, and different strategies that might not have been intended, but, you know, she found through button mashing or through accident or um, yeah. through thinking that surely this should work, um, you know, and the systems allowed it. Um, yeah, so I guess that brings us to the gameplay, which is oh, just on the fire news. Yes, if there is if there is somebody out there listening who's thinking, how can I add a bit of fire to my game? Uh, I read on the weekend that there's uh, Australian birds actually uh, are the second only species to use fire as a tool, and they actually pick up burning sticks from fires and they take it to places where they want to catch food and they set fire to the grass because it's easy to catch prey. Oh my god! Running from fire, so it's been gleaned, and uh, First Nations people talk about this um, going back mm -hmm. a long time, but it hasn't been directly observed um, by uh, more recent um, Australians. But I don't know if you want to get that into a game, Firebirds. Um, yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. I had not heard of that, but that's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah. Well, hopefully they can add that in an update. Then birds that. Uh, well, I suppose they've already got chickens on fire. Maybe something with yeah. a little bit more. <laughs> Uh, finesse to it but um, yeah I guess that like brings us to the the gameplay as you were mentioning it uh, the systems in the game allow for um, some some really interesting 
uh, interactions to take place. It's it's got like an emergent gameplay where uh, fire and water and uh, all come together, so you can create steam, and then you can uh, you have a spell that can let you uh, glide on updrafts of uh, heat and steam. And um, there's a lot of no no two playthroughs will ever be quite the same because there's a uh, hundred different ways that you can beat every level. Um, also, there's uh, there's like a um, the enemies in the game are quite uh, strong. It's uh, the character is primarily stealth, and it does stealth in a really great way as well. It's not so punishing that like a lot of other stealth games, say Hitman, for example, which uh, some would say is like the most well-known stealth game, uh, where people uh, stuff make one stuff up in the game and then go out blasting and reset the entire level. Um, this lets you be spotted, mess up. Uh, be uh the time it takes to reset the enemies from knowing you're there is quite short so it's a uh, the trial and error in the game is a lot, a lot more forgiving but doesn't feel um irrelevant either it's um it's a fine line to walk and i think it does it really well yeah um did you want to talk more about the music uh maze because yeah, i know I would love to. the and music that's a really is a really good segue also yeah. because um so Megan, she's done a lot of talks about this, so I think that um, you can look up on YouTube Megan O'Neill Wildfire, um, and you'd find her doing, you know, explaining some of the things happening. Um, but one of them is that basically she just has so many um, tracks of dynamic music. So there's something like 90 layers coming in and out according to different things happening in the game um so if there's like a little bit of fire um maybe some different percussion will come in one of the main cues is that um when an enemy spots you or thinks they hear you rustling or something like that mm. um symbols will come in so you've got like you know half a second to be like oh, hang on <laughs> let me duck in this grass again um and you know, this is pretty common in games, right? We usually have, you know, okay, the violins come in if your health is low or those sorts of things. Um, but Megan has kind of gone one step further where usually we'll just completely omit an instrument or omit an entire line um, from the score. Yep. But she actually changes keys just by just one instrument at a time. So she'll have like a clarinet line um, that, will, that will be playing like a major third or something, something happy. And then by changing just that note to a minor third, she'll make it feel sad or more daunting or something like that, um, which is a harder way to compose um, and also why, you know, her layers have added up so much. Um, but So... Yeah, really, really granular. Yeah, that hard work really pays off because it's a, a fantastic soundtrack um, and sounds really good and, uh, like, deals really well with that emergent gameplay as well. If uh, um, I mean, I'm not familiar with, like, music theory like you are, but that's, um, that, like, yeah, really well, mixes well with it, hey? Exactly. Having such granular detail of take, being able to take into account so many different parts of, like, what's on screen or what's off screen... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it just means that uh, the player gets so much information and also can sort of like access that flow state that you sort of need for a game like this um, really easily. You know, yeah. there's just a lot to really support the player to get through this. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I really like that. And like as you mentioned earlier, the games made in Game Maker, which is is often seen as a more minimalist um, engine. A lot of big games have been made in Game Maker, um, but you know it is often like, well, that's a two D engine and you can't do three D, but you can you can fake it if you're really good at maths. Um, <laughs> but one of the other things about it, um, and this is probably across most engines, is that the audio capabilities are pretty low, um, and it and you know out of the big engines, Game Maker is probably the hardest to be doing this kind of um, dynamic audio. So Dan Hines, thankfully, is a developer that really really cares about this. So he's done a lot of work adding functionality to the engine. Um, and while Game Maker isn't open source, it does still have quite a vibrant community of trying to help each other through tools um, and added support into the engine and things like that. So and it really shows, really pays off. Yeah, and he, so he's really broken some ground basically for audio capability in that engine, mm. um, and then therefore for a substantial part of the industry basically. Um, yeah, so yeah. quite a good duo uh, in the world of dynamic audio in 2D games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and for that reason and all the others described, I highly recommend that you pick up Wildfire, which you can get on PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X slash S and Nintendo Switch. Uh, are you thinking of picking it up, Warren? Oh, uh, yeah, on Switch. Yeah. Still enjoying Switch. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I highly recommend it. I couldn't recommend it enough. It's a fantastic game. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. We're now uh, joined by uh, a guest um, to uh, tackle one of our favourite topics. Um, AI is uh, now entering the uh, artistic uh, arena. Um, uh, obviously, we talk about it in a, an economic and a labour and a, a pure technological um, uh, point of view, but um, it's now making art and. Oliver Brown is uh, Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Interactive Media Lab at the School of Art and Design at UNSW, and he's done a good thing and made a book about it. Um, what spurred you to, to write the book, uh, Ollie? Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so I've been working in that area for a while, um, and um, uh, so throughout my PhD over 10 years ago, um, and just, just kind of witnessing that field unfold over time. Um, and really just enjoying how it's been progressing. And I was I was motivated to write that book largely because at the time when I originally pitched it, there wasn't um, any any sort of significant single book kind of surveying and reviewing the topic. Um, but uh, as it happened, it kind of really took off. That that field really took off while I was writing it. So so things have changed quite a bit since then. And uh... absolutely, I use so much um, AI and machine learning in my own audio work um is before i read your book is it going to tell me that i'm teaching ai and and machines to uh actually take the rest of my work as well and not just the the grunt work that i get it to do are you there ollie um and we've just managed to rustle up uh, oliver from unsw again uh on the old telephone and we're just having a quick chat about um firstly i guess ai and um it's not just a a, a passive participant in in what we're making Maisie raised a good point that it is actually learning to to um i guess do what we do and, and extend what we do is that is that the thrust of your question there yeah i mean you know in a lot of audio editing um 
you know, we, we're using AI and machine learning to learn um, to cancel out noise or to help with mastering and things like that, you know. Um, so is it the beginning of the end for all of our jobs or, um, or is it fine? <laughs> I think it's um, the big uh, – it, it's – it's definitely we're undergoing a transition, and you mentioned mastering because that's quite an interesting space where uh, it's a very specialist skill, but it's all, it's also something that we can um, do a reasonable job of uh, automating. And uh, you, you just mentioned, like you know, all this data that that we're sort of feeding the machine. The mastering is a great example because we can find, um, depending on what we have access to, we can get lots of unmastered and then mastered tracks, and so you've got the perfect sort of machine learning input output training set um so yes every time you know and the more we kind of move into that space of using those technologies and and having those data sets uh sort of fundamental to what we do the more we we have to feed those systems um so that's an important thing but taking over no because um because there's so much about creation and art that the the machines are still millions of miles away from and particularly how they're how they're situated and grounded in in what they do. Like they're still pretty simple little black boxes that uh, do one thing quite well. Oh, you give a, a good example in um, uh, either in the book uh, or, or around the book around um, them not becoming the next Picasso or Van Gogh because they're they're kind of you know inputs and outputs. And I mean they are they are starting to learn and, and not to sort of um, uh, under sort of um, underemphasize that but they don't they don't have things such as a, um, a context before they perform or create or um, history or, or backstories and, and all of these other things that make um, art such a rich expression um, is that something that they can pick up do you think or um, have, have we got a permanent lead um, on that type of input to art yeah so I mean this this kind of continues that theme of how you like we are socially grounded agents and the, the motivate like the fundamental fundamental reasons why we kind of get up and pick up a paintbrush and make paint something or play a piece of music, um, you know those those fundamental motivations, which are a whole bunch of things, but in particular are grounding in a in a culture and our connection to other people. Um, those so so that kind of uh, actually expressing your identity and that sort of thing. Um, those things are not really kind of going on in, in 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 the things we're doing with machine learning, but they are entirely possible, and there are lots of examples actually of, of how that's beginning to be done. Um, and and kind of AI generation sort of meets other technologies on its journey. So we've got we've had the world of recommender systems for years, um, telling us what or suggesting to us, let's say, what to listen to or what to you know, what movies to watch and what books to buy. And those are incredibly culturally grounded systems. They're actually constantly actively engaged in recommending and gathering more recommended data. Um, so when you actually think about generation systems, whatever they may be, like actually properly connecting with those kinds of things and in the ecosystem of somewhere like Google or Spotify, that's that's highly plausible. Um then, yeah, you, you kind of get this recipe where actually you can have incredibly culturally grounded um, generation algorithms, but they're also typically being, um, well, I mean, th then that becomes a kind of, kind of design issue is what, what we're actually using these for, 
these things for. It does make the idea of the singularity seem much more hilarious where the robots <laughs> are storming up the beach doing Beach Boys covers, um, you know, um, <laughs> or, or far more terrifying. music. Oh, my gosh. Um, robots that really live in the blues lifestyle <laughs> and going through some real hardships. <laughs> just, just instantly, though. <laughs> yeah, just... But hanging hanging down the back alleys for a few weeks before they come out and 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 uh, and take us out. Um, I'm interested in this idea, like from for someone who, who sort of um, doesn't work in this field or, or or sort of understand sort of how, how AI might overlap with art and 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 and, and sort of um, generating culture. What, what what is that principle? Um, that there's a piece here from some of the the background from you about the the impact of advanced generative technologies on creative fields. What what's an advanced generative technology for for the layperson? Um, so the most commonly talked about stuff at the moment is is machine learning, and particularly a, a very um, successful type of machine learning called deep learning or deep learning neural networks. So they are um, they're they're just big matrix based number crunches. They're just they're just um, typically you, you you feed something like an image or a sequence like a sequence of audio samples in, and it will do some tasks such as classify that image. Um, but we've got all these really interesting types of generative um, deep learning algorithms. So in some cases, you've got algorithms where all they try and do is reproduce the data set they've been shown. So you might you might kind of feed it a thousand faces and it will generate um, those faces perfectly, but then it will also be able to generate faces that you've never seen before. Mm. So this is this is something that people are. I mean, there's there's a website you can go to where you can generate a face that doesn't exist, mm. but it's a very it's a very plausible photorealistic face. Um, so the, that's that's the most commonly talked about generative technologies. But it, but it's quite important to recognise that there are a bunch of other ways that we do generation. So one of the really interesting ones is evolutionary algorithms, where you actually basically simulate nature in. Um, evolving a pattern, a style, a behavior, whatever it might be that you're trying to create, um, and you use um, you use targets like in in nature. It helps to be able to run faster. It helps to be able to camouflage yourself. So you're basically trying to create that and let let this kind of um, biological algorithm solve the the search process. And that's really interesting because it's. Um, sort of more overtly creative in the sense that you, all you do is you tell it what you're after and it, it actually works out how to do that. So in your book, uh, Beyond the Creative Species, Making Machines That Make Art and Music, do you teach people how to do this or do you talk about the history? Um, yeah, the book's, what, the, yeah. Book, the book's much more about... Um, just providing an overview, so it's so sort of covering it from a lot of different angles. It doesn't, it, you won't be able to read that book and go off and uh, make a machine that makes our music. It's not, it's not a textbook, but it's, um, but it gives enough pointers to to where you might go to do that. Um, so, so it sort of starts with the with the discussion around what it actually means for an algorithm to do something creative, um, and it goes quite deep into into that philosophical discussion, um, and then going off into one of my main passions around the subject, which is the, the question of social creativity. Um, so basically trying to step away from a perspective of understanding uh, 
human brains as just the kind of core of creativity and looking at entire social systems as being creative. And that's that's actually quite a popular thread in creativity studies. And it's pretty key to understanding um, how machines might be creative. And also, really importantly, um, it's really common to sort of over over invest in what humans do, you know, what humans are, are capable of in terms of creativity. So that sort of investment in the idea of the the lone genius that out of out of nothing sort of creates a new mm-hmm. style or genre. Um, so sometimes we're we're trying, actually trying to set far too high a standard for what a machine might do. So if people are, are interested in, um, I guess, understanding this a little bit better or, or maybe even starting to bring it into their own kind of um, creative um, sphere, to, even just to evaluate it, should I be doing this? Is it is it worth doing? Do I want to do it? Or even just I'm going to give it a go and um, have a go. What, what would you recommend? How can they get into your book or, or, or um, start to explore it? Um, well, yeah, more and more there are actually end-user tools. So, if, so for a very long time, if you were a sort of moderately competent programmer, you you could go off and grab um, algorithms and do things with them, but there weren't really tools that you could just use out of the box without without some programming chops. So um, that's really shifted in the last, say, five years. There's, there's a lot of tools. So, for example, there's a there's a program called Runway. Um, you can just download that and, and, and run it and try it out, and it's kind of like this crazy... Um, it's it's this huge suite. So so it's one of those systems which is like a plug-in based system. Lots of different people contribute algorithms to it. Um, it's this huge suite of tools that can do things like image processing or video processing, and um, you can basically sort of weave together um, your own sort of hybrid of different algorithms and and do pretty effective stuff. So that's that's one really cool example of um, being able to use um, machine learning or generative systems. But as to as to why you'd want to, um, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of interesting art and kind of conceptual art uh, concepts coming out of this work. Um, I just heard about a really interesting one um, a couple of days ago. So I've, I've heard this before. Like, um, you can generate the music of of say uh, you know a dead um, artist. Like, uh, so I've heard gener- generated Nirvana tracks that are sort of these weird variations but um uh, a group actually did this as a men- as a mental health awareness uh idea i can't remember the name of them but they um they were basically they they produced a, a nirvana track an imaginary nirvana track um using ai but they were doing it with this message around suicide and mental health um yeah. and so you know that's actually just a really compelling idea that that, I mean, I would, I would have never imagined that in a million years, but it's a really compelling idea of how um, that concept is being used. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating uh, look at AI and, um, I guess, the human condition as well. Um, Dr. Ollie Bound, thanks for coming on the show to talk about your new book, Beyond the Creative Species, Making Machines That Make Art and Music. Thanks a lot. Great, no uh, great to be on. Right. Cheers. Triple R. You're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR with Maze, Dan and Warren and special guest Mitch McCosland, um, who is a Sydney-based games producer currently working at Blowfish Studios as an assistant publishing producer. Outside of work, he volunteers his time with the Sydney chapter of International Game Development Association as well as serving as an organiser for Game Workers Unite Australia. 
Prior to working at Blowfish, Mitch worked for major advertising agencies, slot gaming companies, and even his hometown arcade. Welcome, Mitch, to the show. How are you going? I'm good. Thanks, Mitch, for having me. You, you nailed my last name. Sometimes people get that a bit wrong, but you've known me well long enough <laughs> to get it right. But anyway, I'm <laughs> um, good. Yeah, congrats on your on your new job, or oh, not so you. new. But... Oh, well, three months. It's still early days. So tell us a bit about yourself. How's your career in games evolved? Oof. Did it start off at your hometown arcade? Um, oh, probably even before then. Um, yeah, I think many people have these kinds of tales of seeing their first game that makes them want to get into games. Mine was um, the merry old days of 1993, Christmas morning. My cousin got a Sega Mega Drive with a whole bunch of games. One of them happened to be the first Mortal Kombat. And he brought it over to my house, um, whacked it on. Remember him picking Sub-Zero? Was that the courtyard? It was fighting Raiden, I think. And I just like something about that whole audiovisual kind of situation, just something clicked in my brain. I'm like, I'm, I'm in. I'm in for the long haul. I uh, <laughs> don't know how, but... Um, I'm going to find my way. And as you'll probably find out very shortly, it wasn't exactly smooth sailing for most of, the, my, most of my life. Yeah, so where where was the first job? How oh, did that go, come about? Oh, which one? Like, well, the arcade. Well, that's, that's, like, um, <laughs> that's like pre-uni days. Oh, amazing. I, I, I kind of geeked out um, at the, the attendant there because they had – Street Fighter 3 Third Strike, and I'm like in awe that they had that machine there. And I kind of like chatted their ear off and gave them my resume and <laughs> tried to <laughs> chase up the boss several times. <laughs> nice. Finally, strong arm my way into the job, and I was there for five years. So that paid yeah, through right. the, the uni days. So and did you study games? Yeah, um, did, uh, um, originally, um, I started at UOW, uh, University of Wollongong. Um, I happened to be in the first cohort of um, their um, games. Oh, was it games and multimedia? I forgot the major. It's been so long ago. Oh, fine, that was two thousand and eight. Two thousand and seven. Two thousand and seven. I started doing that, but then like I kind of found it was a bit of a red herring for me in a way. Like it wasn't focusing enough on game dev as much as I'd liked. So halfway through. Um, end up going to what is now SAE Quantum in right. Sydney and doing a, um, a Bachelor of Interactive Entertainment majoring in games programming. I have not done any games programming professionally since then, um, <laughs> but um, that was definitely a, like, you know, really interesting. Like, it's just going, reminiscing of those days. It's just it's fun, it's strange how much has changed in the gaming landscape, <laughs> the game dev landscape. Like, we, we, we were, like, poo-pooing um the unity engine which um is yeah. widely used nowadays we thought it was like our first like you know um, my first ever game engine like this kids toy but funny how things right. change yeah yeah absolutely and Mitch, um, sorry um you're you're working at blowfish studios now which yeah. is a publisher um yeah can you tell us uh like we've we've interviewed a few developers but not so yeah. many publishers can you tell us uh what the what your role in and your studio's yeah, role is yeah. in the um, video game so, scene? So Blowfish is kind of a hybrid 
developer publisher. Like we were a developer first um, and kind of just organically, we've kind of taken the mantle as a um, publisher as well. Um, like while my um, exposure with the overall process of like signing a game to publishing a game is limited because I've only been there for three months. Um, it's well, I, from my under from my what people have told me and what I've experienced. It's kind of we kind of help. We're a little bit different to your standard like your Activisions and your um your uh, EAs where yes. they're kind of just studios like without the best throwing uh, money at you all the time and like you know super corporate. We kind of like um help each other. I help developers out like they'll. We'll find they might have a game that's close to being ready to go out on Steam, but um, we'll help them get it like to that from like that 80% that they're at to 100% for Steam release, as well as um, porting to consoles as well. And that's one of the like, especially in Australia, there's not that many places that I don't I don't think there are any other part like someone on the internet will probably correct me, like, there may be some other person some other studio out there to have actually published games onto consoles, but I think we're the only independent publisher in Australia. And um, like we were in a unique situation where we've like published games on um, a variety of consoles. We've published stuff with, we actually have a game on PlayStation five, um, our port of um, infliction uh, final cut is a very nice home homemade um horror, first person horror game massive uh, pt vibes um but yeah like it's we we help like you know integrate their game from like this what essentially is just a kind of like a pc build and put it across like all these different ecosystems and it's it is definitely um quite a whole new world especially for like even for a lot of people that make, make games like just who are just developers they don't necessarily get that exposure to like the back ends of how microsoft nintendo sony etc um work and how they get their games from like just this little bit of data on a hard drive out into the world so it's yeah not, like it's, it's not, been it's been good so far so not not really production of the game, sort of taking an idea from sort of concept or storyboard um, or what's through. We do we to... do do um like it. Every project's different. Um, like we do have like some co-developed stuff, like where we um will like from day dot, like we'll help actually develop the idea, the actual gameplay and all that kind of stuff with another developer. We've actually done our own games. Um, like mm. for example. We did the um, game adaptation of that classic uh, Aussie book, um, Storm Boy, a few years back, um, which has done some, uh, I think it's won a few awards and has done quite well. Um, I played the follow-up to that one, Disgruntled Stork. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Looked a bit different. Oh, gosh. All right. Uh, I think there'll be a few people in the office who will appreciate that bad pun. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, but, like, a lot of the... Like, the games that I've again early days, um, all the games that I've I've had my hand on is is more about like you know we still have a say in like what a, how a game should play or like you know refine like given feedback in terms of like how a game like you know 
add a the user experience of a game per se and like you know maybe like in terms of the um the way that uh say for example like i'm going into a multiplayer lobby and like just that general experience like okay from like trying to find a game and disconnecting and all that kind of stuff like it is def like so far my role is definitely more of a technical producer role that i've kind of as opposed to purely creative but that like the way that the studio is set up is like it's um there are there are opportunities for us to you know flex our creative muscles um so it's just that um you know i'm still learning a lot like i gotta learn my main job um <laughs> but uh yeah they'll definitely like i i'm very confident i'll be able to flex some more creative muscles there as i grow into the role can you take us through just like a typical day is it like a yeah. say like a book publisher where they're reading manuscripts are you just playing through demos all day and uh that uh, kind of thing or is it sometimes uh like it varies like there'll be meetings um sometimes like we've got some people in the team they're in in america for example so there's that whole kind of um catching up what's going on in Slack and um, and also to like a lot of our um, partners that we publish games for, they're quite all over the world. Um, we've got um, people f that are making games in Russia, um, Brazil, uh, Thailand now, um, uh, Slovenia, like all over the shop and, and, and Australians and people from America as well. Like it's a wide range of... Um, resources that we um re wide range of developers and backgrounds that we um publish games for um so yeah catching up with that kind of stuff um yeah there'll be some um gameplay like a lot of times it'll be like a lot of data entry and localization localization they don't tell you this when you're at uni like how much yeah how much you have to consider about like you know making sure that um japanese or um Got too uh, many drongos in, are like in your game. Correctly on a on a screen to be able to, you know, make sure that you'll be able to sell your game on a on PlayStation. Like, um, there is a lot of localization and store copy, a lot of setting up store store pages and um, making sure that, you know, and a lot of um, reviewing um, bug reports and that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess yeah, there's so a little bit of QA along with all of oh, that um, console yeah, like, certification. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Like, uh, we do have a dedicated um, quality assurance team, um, but, uh, like, that we, we do have a close relationship with them. And, like, we do... Because we, we have, like... We're the port we're the, um, port of call when it comes to, like, issues that come from certification. So, like, if, like, you know, say Microsoft's got an issue with a build, we'll be the one, like, myself and Aaron, my superior, will hear it first. We'll, we'll, we, get, we get the automated emails and make sure, like, you know, <laughs> the testers and development team are aware of, like, okay, like, the achievement integration's not working or something like that, you know. We, yeah, we're, we're, in a way, like, I kind of see ourselves as, like, you know, there's a bit of product management. There's a bit of account management. There's a bit of um, QA and developer management. And like, there's also like my experience of 
agency land, for example, that work in an advertising agency, I felt like that kind of helped me out a little bit in terms of like sorting out all the store art. I was just feeling like I was making banners again. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, right. Because like, like that's a, again, that's another thing too is just the amount of assets you need to create for each different store and how like they're like even depending on different regions that have different assets. Like, yeah, there's it's a very um, it can be quite daunting. So it's that. not all the glamorous um, running around to different shows, playing games all day. Uh, well, that's um, the problem. That's as problem we all when, hope. Oh well, that's the problem when you get a you get a job in the games industry while there's still COVID going around. Like, <laughs> oh, like where's where's my trip to PAX? But <laughs> seriously, um, scouting uh, games to sign. <laughs> is there like a uh, con no, show no, for games? Does everyone get together facts. on the Riviera or? <laughs> no, no. Um, like, I, I can definitely say um, I can justify buying consoles for work-related purchases. Um, <laughs> so there, there are still benefits. Um, <laughs> um, Mitch, just but, before um, just before we finish up, what's yeah. uh, is there any projects that you can tell us? Upcoming oh, yes. from Blowfish that uh, we can look forward yeah, to. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we've got um, a, we've got a fair few on our plate, but the two games that are upcoming that we that are coming up soon. Um, first of all, on April the thirteenth, um, Kung Fu Kickball. Um, it's a multiplayer. Um, think of it as like it's a fighting game, but like Rocket League with a bit of Smash and a bit of an NBA Jam. So you like one v one, two v two, like kicking, um, like. A, 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 like a, a dodgeball around hitting bells like goal hitting into goals um that's going into steam early access on um april the 13th so just i, I believe just for um pc sounds like a little and bit it, of crazy fun yeah and that's already and then we've already got a demo on um uh, switch as well so if if you want to have a taste of that you can download that on the um, eShop right oh, now awesome and the other game the next big release is um base one uh it's a space um, space station kind of building management simulator. Um, that's oh, coming amazing. out. Amazing! That sounds so. Sounds yeah, right with a bit of RPG elements, you got like the old school kind of like Fallout, like you know, screen of like the face talking. You got the dialogue options. Um, yeah, uh, that comes out on May eleventh, and that will be on um, Steam, both Mac and PC. Gog just for PC and GOG and the Mac App Store. That's awesome. We'll keep our eyes peeled for those releases. Mitch yeah, McCausland sure. from Bloodfish Studios, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Triple R. Dan, anything you want to point out? Yahoo Answers, one of the longest running and most storied web Q&A platforms in the history of the internet, <gasps> is shutting down on May 4th. Jimmy. Boo, no. hoo, sad, sad. <laughs> yeah. How will we maintain our um, positions as um, intellectuals in the community without Yahoo Answers in our pocket? I have no idea. It's a dark day. Maze, you've got a, a game conference coming up, I think. Yeah, well, I just wanted to highlight, actually, um, that it happened over the last few days, the uh, Game Accessibility Conference, GA Conf, um, who discuss approaching accessibility in game design and game development. Um, they've uploaded all of their videos to YouTube. Um, they all happened while we were asleep in Australia. Um, so on YouTube, just look up We'll tweet, out, we'll tweet out a link for those, yeah. G-A-S-I-G, mm. um, which is the Game Accessibility Special Interest Group. 
um, yeah, to find a whole heap of really cool talks um, about games accessibility and and both in design and in the development of them. Yeah. Thank you very much to our guests tonight, uh, Mitch McCausland and Oliver Bowne. Um, thanks to Elizabeth McCarthy for helping us with interviews and so forth. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.